Now, welcome to increment 123 of Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus, hopefully with 2020 vision, even though it's 2021. We've been involved in, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, but really going all the way back to 1, 1 and 2, and 1, 3, with a the law of similarity and dissimilarity, or with a comparison and contrast between every archpriest and the unique great archpriest who is Jesus, the Son of God, our great archpriest. So we want to dive right in here at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. Every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God, to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. Now, there's a plural here, gifts and offerings. There are many kinds of offerings, many kinds of gifts or sacrifices in the Levitical system or the Aaronic system. All of those together are in anticipation of a once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is both the priest as offerer and the lamb as the offered sacrifice. And we're going to see how important this is to the epistle in a letter or a homily in an epistle that we call Hebrews. We just spoke about intimations or hints, we might call them, up to chapter 5. In Hebrews 1.3, the Son. Now, Son without an article is called anarthros. Sometimes when the Greek omits an article, it does the opposite of what the English language would do. If we wanted to emphasize Son, a Son, we would say the Son, with the article the, or the, in front of Son. Sometimes the anarthrous construction in the Greek does the same thing. So when it says, though he was son, in Hebrews 5.8, referring back to Hebrews 1.2, God spoke in a son or in son without an article, you should probably translate that as the capital, T-H-E, the son, all the more doing what our article would do. So, we're talking about God's Son, the Son in whom God has spoken in these last days, who has made purification for sins. How did he do that? As a priest. Someone asked, when did he actually become a great archpriest? Well, let me just put it this way for now, and I'm not going to answer the question definitively. What does a priest do? He makes offering for sins. He offers gifts and offering for sins. When did Jesus offer his gift and sacrifice for sins? On the cross. Therefore, was Jesus already the great archpriest because he was acting in offering a sacrifice for sins? That's just something to think about. It's something that we should entertain as we go along. For I think... If I'm going to be a teacher, I sure would like to get people to think because I want people to come to their own convictions, do their own thinking, 
And as Job said, as it says in the book of Job anyways, to taste every word of a teacher like the palate tests foods. Now sometimes we test a food, test food and find out, for example, like recently I was eating grape tomatoes and one of them was rotten and man did that taste terrible and I spit it out. But there are some things that we know are good for us that don't taste good. We still have to test it with our spiritual palate and we still have to take it and eat it and digest it. And some of those things are coming up in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, as we've said before, and really a lot of them in 5, 11 through 6, 20. Exhortation, warning. And we have to be giving those all the time as teachers. We teach every man, we warn every man that we may present every person complete in Christ. Again, that's Colossians 1, 28. And we do it, however, with the power that works inside us that empowers us to do that. Otherwise, it would be ridiculous to try to do 100 messages in Hebrews or any other book because we can't do it in the energy of the flesh. So we just spoke about intimations up to chapter 5. In Hebrews 1.3, the Son, whom God appointed to be heir of all things and who is the radiance of God's Shekinah glory, and the exact representation of God's substance, the Son in whom God spoke with definitive finality in these last days, made purification for sins. There's the first intimation that he is a great archpriest. He made purification for sins and was then raised up and seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven wherefrom he upholds and carries all things to a redemptive conclusion, presenting all of history, as it were, as a redeemed entity to the Father. That he made purification for sins is the specific part of the intimation of the archpriesthood of Christ that's being handled in Hebrews 5. Made purification for sins chimes with, and when I say chimes, I mean rings agreeably with or sounds agreeably with or agrees with, made purification for sins chimes with the distinct duty of every archpriest. In Hebrews 5.1, it's put this way to offer both gifts and offering for sins. See, that, that chimes with made purification for sins in Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 5.1, to offer sacrifices and offerings for sins. And so, here, that's 5.1. So this is the most fundamental duty of the archpriest as one who is appointed to, quote, act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God. I like the vertical, the vertical and horizontal association here. On behalf of human beings is the horizontal part of the priestly duty, and in things that pertain to God is the vertical. So here we have the Son, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. So 
And as we said before, to have a view to the wider structure here, in 5, 1 to 10, we have the initial earnest comparison and contrast of Jesus Christ with every archpriest. But then there's a stoppage point. There's a stoppage right at verse 11. Stop. 511 all the way through 620. There's an interval of preparation, a teeing up of for the central section because the pastor isn't sure whether his readers are ready and prepared to handle this doctrine. To have an interval this long between the 510 and 7-1, where the central section begins, shows the tremendous significance of the doctrine he's about ready to assess and bring forth with clarity. Because it hasn't been done elsewhere in the scriptures, nowhere. Nowhere has it been done, only in Hebrews. So he's, the doctrine is so important to them and to us in the 21st century that it took this long of an interval of exhortation involving the severest of warnings that you might find in the scripture, 6, 4 to 8, which again, as we said in the last increment, is only possibly compared to Hebrews 10, 26, to 29 in the last most potent lengthy exhortation of Hebrews which starts in 1019 goes through 39 and then on into the list of faith heroes culminating in one sense with Rahab but then also going on so 6 1 to 20 uh, 5 11 to 20 is warning then 7 1 to 1018 is a kind of central section and that is in three concentric circles, as we said before, a circle within a circle within a circle, and in the circle within a circle in a circle, there's the crucified Christ, again, the crucified Son of God, who is now our great archpriest. So picking up again in 5.1, 5.1 chimes with... One three purification for sins in one three chimes with offering gifts and offering for sins in five one, and again this becomes the most and is the most fundamental duty of the archpriest, who is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God. For this reason, the PT has already said again another intimation in Hebrews two seventeen that Jesus, meaning the Son. Quote, was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God. There it is, things pertaining to God, emphasizing the vertical orientation of the priest in that case. So compare Hebrews 2.17 with Hebrews 5.1 with regard to things that pertain to God and Hebrews 5.1 with 1.3 in regard to making purification for sins, or we could say propitiation, expiation for sins. To make expiation slash propitiation for the sins of the people in Hebrews 2.17 chimes with Hebrews 1.3, made purification for sins, and with Hebrews 5.1. I'm showing you the interweaving of this whole thing to offer both gifts and offerings for sins. This is a theme, a motif, a topic, a subject 
that will expand considerably in the central section of this homily. And again, I want to give you this idea, the central section 7-1 to 10-18, following the preliminary interlude and warning that's found in 5-11 to 6-20. We've already spoken at great length on the meaning of expiation, which, bottom line, is the removal of or taking away of sins or sin itself with its propitiatory effect. Slight difference, in fact, really a pretty significant difference, really, between propitiation and expiation. We've explained it before. We will no doubt explain it again because we have to as we progress in this epistle, this homily within a letter. The archpriesthood, whether generic in the case of the Aaronic order of archpriests or whether specific and unique, and I use the word there for the word for specific and unique, monadic. I'm using that word in a, in a unique and a monadic application. Monadic in the case of the messianic archpriest. So there's every archpriest, which is generic, and then there is the unique or monadic or one and only priest, great archpriest Jesus Christ, which is monadic. So there is a law of similarity and dissimilarity between the generic and the monadic, and there is therefore a comparison and contrast going on between Jesus Christ, the great archpriest after the order of Melchizedek, as we're going to see, and every archpriest. There's similarities and dissimilarities. There's a comparison and a contrast. This law of dissimilarity and similarity is used with rhetorical effect to persuade the readers and to dissuade them from a course of action that could be utterly destructive. That's what the Word of God does. It's alive and powerful, as we've heard. So, this is a theme that will expand considerably in the central section of this homily following a preliminary warning. So we've already spoken at great length on the propitiation and the expiation. We will again, that's just another note sounded in the symphony again, we will again. The archpriesthood, whether generic in the case of the Aaronic order, Aaron, Aaronic, or whether monadic in the case of Jesus Christ himself, Jesus. So we'll say Aaronic or Aaron as the representative of that. Sometimes Levi is used, his grandson, as we'll see, in a comparison of Levi and Melchizedek in Hebrews 7, which goes back to Genesis 14 and then Psalm 110.4. So again, the archpriest, whether generic in the case of the Aaronic order of archpriests or whether specific and unique, monadic, in the case of the Messianic archpriest, is a vocation in both cases which is designed to be for human beings. Every archpriest, and this is true for both the Aaronic archpriests and for Jesus, is also selected from among human beings. That's a comparison, Hebrews 5.1. That's again why Jesus was, quote, bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God to make expiation, propitiation for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2.17. Without the incarnation, the Son 
could not have been selected from human beings to be archpriest. Without the incarnation, the eternal son could not have suffered and fulfilled the unspeakable task of experiencing death, the wages of sin, for all human beings in order to bring all human beings into a glorious and living solidarity with himself. The archpriesthood of Jesus, the Son of God, is a significant element of what is called divine promeity. Promeity, something that we hit pretty hard in Romans. If you ever want to be interested in following up on the doctrine of promeity, you can see various titles on the website from Romans that have promeity in the title, P-R-O-M-E-I-T-E. And it's kind of like a play on words or a paranomasia that I use when I say pro-me. Jesus Christ is pro-me. He's pro-you. He's for us as God is. So once again, the archpriest of Jesus, the Son of God, is a significant element of what is called divine promeity, what God does and is for us. Moreover, archpriests generally, whether speaking generically of every Levitical archpriest or monadically, yes, it is a word. I made sure by looking it up on the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition, page 1136. Monadically. So whether we're speaking generically of every Levitical archpriest or monadically of the Messianic archpriest Jesus, the apostle and archpriest of our confession, as he's called in Hebrews 3.1, Jesus, the Son of God, as he's called in Hebrews 4.14, they act, whether it's Jesus or the archpriests of the Levitical order, they act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God. There's comparison. Priesthood is primarily a vertical orientation and secondly, a horizontal one. It's accomplished as a duty pertaining to God, and it's performed for, in behalf of, for the benefit of human beings, the great benefit of it. In the monadic, messianic case, the case of Jesus, his sacrifice for sins was for all human beings over the course of all time, in contrast with every archpriest whose once-a-year sacrifice was annual for the people of Israel at that point in time, and every priest who stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, Hebrews 10.11. There we're going to find there's a great contrast between every priest who stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices that can never take away sins with the unique the monadic messianic archpriest who having offered one sacrifice for all people for all time sat down in Hebrews 10.12. So we should keep bearing in mind that perhaps a strong and maybe the strongest, listen carefully to this, we should perhaps bear in mind throughout our study of Hebrews from now on that perhaps a strong and maybe even the strongest disincentive to the readers of this epistle that would deteriorate their hold on their confession of Jesus, the Son of God, the greatest disincentive, I said, was the false thought that they did not have an archpriest like the people who remained in the system that they had abandoned. On the other hand, the strongest 
incentive would be the very knowledge that the Son of God whom they confessed was indeed a great archpriest and their archpriest and one whose importance was far greater and whose ministry was more lasting even through the age. Through the age. Note that phrase. phrase Through the age or to the age or we could say throughout the age. Hebrews 5.6, Hebrews 5.10. So the law of similarity and dissimilarity continues in Hebrews 5.2. And who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray, since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. That's every archpriest. Every archpriest has to be able to moderate his emotions and his reactions to those who come to him with their offerings after having been led astray and having sinned in ignorance. The archpriest is able to do this because he himself experiences the weaknesses that lead sometimes to sin. Jesus is like every archpriest, so there's a comparison, inasmuch as he too moderates his human emotions and does not react with disgust or with anger or hysteria at the sins of those who come to him. When we see Jesus in the gospel accounts of Mark and Matthew and of Luke and John, we never see him where he is not in control of his emotions. He is not without emotions, passions, feelings. He doesn't squash them like the Stoics did. Nor did he ever overreact as we all do from time to time. He was angry on occasion, such as Mark 3, 5, but, never but he, at the same time he was never sinning. He was angry and sinned not, as Psalm 4 says. When people came to him, he always showed compassion without exception and love, though sometimes he challenged those who came to him in love. He met those who were ruling to the hurt of the people, ruling to the harm of the people. He met those like a lion. He was led, on the other hand, to the slaughter as a lamb. As archpriest, Jesus fits the qualification of being able to, quote, <clears throat> deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray. That's a comparison. But in contrast to every archpriest of the Levitical order, in contrast to every archpriest, Jesus' gentle dealing is not due to having weakness that led him to sin, but due to his having experienced weakness, and he was even crucified in weakness, and every kind of test, and yet without sin. Moreover, in contrast to every archpriest, this unique monadic archpriest Jesus is also the divine Son of God, the uniquely, eternally begotten Son of God. And he's able to actively and effectively help those who come to God through him, being God himself and being the Lord who is my helper, as Hebrews 13.6 says. So, Hebrews 5.3 tees up 
a pure contrast between every archpriest and Jesus, the Son of God. See, we keep moving back from comparison to contrast, from similarity to dissimilarity, and that combination is a rhetorical skillfulness on the part of this writer that becomes persuasive for these believers to continue on to spiritual maturity and perfection and to leave behind the things that are behind. So Hebrews 5.3 tees up a pure contrast between every archpriest and Jesus, the Son of God, our archpriest who has passed through the heavens. In Hebrews 5.3, look at it. And because of this weakness, and I put in brackets because I think this helpfully clarifies this, because of this weakness, that is the weakness of every archpriest, which sometimes leads to sin in every archpriest except for Jesus Christ. Just as he offers sacrifice for the sins of the people, he must also do so for himself. That is a pure contrast. Jesus doesn't have to present an offering for sins for himself because he knew no sin, did no sin, spoke no sin. Sin was never found in him. Sin was never the result of him being tested and tempted while being tested. So unlike every archpriest, this archpriest does not offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he ain't got none. He hasn't got any sins. In fact, he doesn't even offer a sacrifice other than himself, but he offers himself as the sacrifice being sinless and therefore being a lamb without blemish, within and without. He did no sin outside. He knew no sin inside. He was a lamb undefiled inside and outside. So because every archpriest, every archpriest has the kind of weakness that sometimes leads him to sin, and therefore every archpriest does sin, so he has to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people of Israel and also for himself. We're talking there about every archpriest of the Levitical and Aaronic order. This does not include Jesus Christ. Every archpriest does include Jesus Christ when it speaks about being selected from among human beings and offering sacrifices for sins and acting on behalf of people and acting on behalf of what pertains to God, acting on behalf of people. Jesus and every other archpriest also moderates his emotions and deals gently with those who come to him. Those are all comparisons. But a contrast is Jesus doesn't, like every other archpriest, we could say, offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he has no sin, knew no sin, did no sin, spoke no sin. So because every archpriest apart from Jesus Christ has the kind of weakness which sometimes leads to sin, and therefore every archpriest does sin, he has to therefore offer sacrifices for the sins of the people of Israel and also for himself. All of this is going toward the idea and the concept and the reality that these readers of this homily do indeed not only have a great archpriest, but one who is superior to Aaron 
and to the order that they had abandoned when they followed Jesus Christ and heard the gospel and were enlightened. So this is a direct contrast in 5.3 with Jesus, our great archpriest, who, though tested in every way as we are, and even as tempted during the course of his testing, passed through it all without sin. He who was temptable showed himself to be nevertheless impeccable. Therefore, Jesus offers one sacrifice for all and forever, and not for himself, but for the sins of the people. Inasmuch as he offers a sacrifice for the sins of the people, he is compared with every archpriest, but inasmuch as he doesn't offer only for the people of Israel, but for the sins of the whole world, he is not like every archpriest. So not just for the people called Israel, but for all people over the course of all time, Jesus offered himself. He put away sin itself by his own self-offering at the juncture of the ages in Hebrews 9.26. He didn't have to do it often either. Didn't have to suffer often. Suffered once. So as will become exceedingly clear later on in this homily, Jesus' sacrifice as Messiah was himself. And not an animal, which is an entity other than himself. And he obtained eternal redemption or redemption for the age, as David Bentley Hart translates it in his translation of the New Testament in 5.6. And I have the footnotes on that. But again, unto the age. You have this very embattled phrase, and he capitalizes, thankfully, age here, and there's a reason for that, and I'll get to that, not only in this increment, in increments down the road, perhaps. But David Bentley Hart, H-A-R-T, in his translation of the New Testament, or I think he simply calls it the New Testament translation, in Hebrews 9.12, speaking of eternal redemption, as it's usually in the English, he calls it redemption unto the age. And actually for the age is another one. For the age. Let's correct that, what I just said. David Bentley Hart translates Hebrews 9.12, redemption unto the age, or an emancipation price unto the age, as he puts it in or for the age, rather, for the age, I'm sorry, again, Hebrews 9.12, for the age, redemption for the age in 9.12. In Hebrews 5.6, which we're coming up to very shortly, unto the age, Jesus Christ is appointed to be priest unto the age, unto the age, like Melchizedek, unto the age. Both of these are pretty good translations whether, again, unto the age or to the age, as Young's translation puts it. Young's literal translation is also good on this in the Aeonios word group, and he puts it as to the age in Young's literal translation 
to the age. Now, the word age, which heart helpfully capitalizes, evidently refers to the messianic age, which began with the Christ event and goes on perpetually. Now, this is important to understand. This is a nuance that I've discovered and that I'm putting forth that I don't really see in other treatments of this. The Aeonios word group, as it's called. Aeonios word group. This is where a lot of Christian interpretations get a little mixed up. It's Aeonios, which looks like this in the Greek. A-I, omega O N I, omicron O S. Aeonios. Now, Aeonios means sometimes it, sometimes people translate it as eternal or eternity or for eternity or everlasting or whatever. But this is the point here. As to the age, as is translated here in Hebrews 5, 6, that we're going to see pretty soon, to the age extends into future world and c- continues forever. Therefore, People who are afraid to use the word forever in connection with aeonios can be mistaken in one regard. If something is said to be for the age, like redemption or like Jesus' priesthood, it can mean perpetually in that context or even everlastingly and forever would be okay. Forever doesn't indicate eternity but an everlastingness that begins at a point in time and never ends. Eternity doesn't have a beginning or an ending point. So we have to be careful of the word eternity. When people talk about eternal hell and eternal fire that burns people in hell, they are way off the mark. But let's consider it. And I want to go back up a little bit. When translators use the translation for the age, as David Bentley, Hartley, David Bentley Hart does in his translation of Hebrews 9.12, or unto the age, as David Bentley Hart does in Hebrews 5, 6, which we're coming up to soon, not in this increment, or to the age, as Young's literal translation has it, the word age, which Hart helpfully capitalizes, refers to the messianic age, which began with the Christ event and goes on perpetually. The present evil age is ongoing, but it's going to end. It's going to effectively end. It has an end point. Really, it has an end point at the cross, but it has an experiential end point, we could say, in the near future. It is a transient age. It's evanescent. It's passing. It's a passe age. It's not here for good. It's not here for the duration, thank God. But in contrast, the age that began with Jesus Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation, and therefore began with his appointment as great archpriest, is an age that does go on in perpetuity. Now that's an important distinction, and it's an important differentiation for our consciousness. So as I see it, now I'm speaking not, I'm not speaking for Hart or for Young or for Romelli or for Constan or for other universalists in our time. I'm not speaking for 
Robin Perry. I'm not speaking for Thomas Talbot. I'm not speaking for Jürgen Moltmann or for Eberhard Jungel or for others who have dealt with this subject. I'm speaking here for myself. As I see it, in certain contexts, the word forever would convey a proper understanding. To the age extends, therefore, into future world, which is a world without end. The context is usually determinative of the meaning in most, of not all cases in the New Testament where the word aeonios is used. When aeonios is used for punishment, for example, in Matthew 25, 41, or for fire in Matthew 25, 46, and Jude 1, 7, the word indicates an action that comes from another world, and it's an action that may be temporal or even instantaneous. For example, when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed from fire, eternal fire, as some translations say it, that's wrong. It's fire from another world that came into this world to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the metroplex around them, but that left an everlasting example of what happens to people who have abundance and who are arrogant about their abundance and don't care for the poor, etc., which were the sins of Sodom. In Ezekiel 16, 49, of course, Sodom will be restored to her former state in 1655. But the fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah isn't one that's eternally burning now. It's a fire from another age which destroyed that city and the only thing that's eternal about that or the only thing that's everlasting about that is the testimony that it leaves behind. doesn't mean people from Sodom and people from Gomorrah and the cities of the plain are burning forever in eternal fire. That's, a, that's not only not very smart or intelligent, it's not very reasonable, it's not very loving, it's not very responsible, and it's a result of not being too attentive. It's also a little bit blasphemous. So... When aeonios is used for punishment or fire, as it is in Matthew 25, 41, or Jude 1, 7, the word indicates an action that comes from another world and may be temporal or even an instantaneous action. When fire is predicated of God, in which it says our God is a fire, a consuming fire, that means fire is predicated of God, as in Hebrews 12:29, our God is a consuming fire. Fire there can be interpreted as being an eternal fire because God is eternal and God is love. So to be consumed by the fire that is God is to be purified and transformed by love. It can be a fearful experience depending on what perspective you're coming at from coming at it from so in closing today's increment i think we'll just leave this there's we used an analogy in hebrews or rather in revelation where like in the old ed sullivan shows there were several long sticks and a man would have a plate and he would spin the plate on each of these sticks and he'd keep going and spinning the plates i want to keep spinning the plate of the Aeonios word group in Hebrews because it's extremely important for our own time. And so we want to keep in mind throughout that this adjective, Aeonios, is a versatile one and many times, if not every time, 
context determines its nuance of meaning. When the same adjective, for example, aeonios, modifies the noun pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma. When it modifies the word pneuma for spirit, for example, as it does in Hebrews 9.14, speaking of the divine spirit, it conveys the sense not only of age abiding, which is another good translation for this, age abiding, or age during, as some of the old timers used to say. When it's before the word pneuma, aeonios pneuma, the divine spirit, it conveys not only the sense of age abiding or even everlasting, both of which are nevertheless pertinent, but it also conveys the idea of eternal in the sense of having no temporal beginning or end, which is the Holy Spirit. No temporal beginning, no end. The Holy Spirit was eternally spirated by God the Father and the Son and therefore had no beginning, no temporal beginning, no temporal ending. So punitive actions is another thing. Punitive actions, even if from God, are not everlasting or eternal when they're said to be aeonios because God is the God of salvation. His wrath is but for a moment and his mercy endures forever. His punitive actions may have everlasting redemptive results but never denote an ongoing or everlasting experience of punishment. So the Aeonios word group in Hebrews is one of the plates I want to keep spinning throughout our study called We See Jesus, especially since it has relevance to the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and to the cosmic or universal redemptive reconciling and rectifying impact of his death on the cross, which is a once and for all and forever self-sacrifice for the sins of all people over the course of all time. So thank you, Father, for another opportunity to gaze into that perfect law of liberty and to be transformed into the image of your Son from one degree to the next as by the Spirit of the Lord and the Spirit who is the Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.